You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. All right, I am Ashley Homley. I am one of the five staff members here at Alliant Life Christian Fellowship, and we have been in the series, Then He Said, looking at the parable-rich section of Luke's gospel all about entering the kingdom. The parables here tell us who you might expect to be in the kingdom isn't, or where we have been, and then we'll talk about where we are today. So we started this series on parables with the sower. And that is a story that Jesus tells about the word of God falling on different kinds of hearts. You have the ignoring heart that is just not interested and done. You have the the trial version heart, which is kind of a commit-as-you-go type of a thing. You have the distracted heart, which because of cares and worries and responsibility just gets distracted away from the Lord. And you have the searching heart, which is a heart that is actively looking to know him, looking to be changed by him. Then we went to our next parable, the narrow gate. And that is maybe more addressing that trial version, monthly subscription kind of heart and the distracted one. And talking about entering God's kingdom is more than just sort of knowing or being around Jesus or church. It's more than owning a Bible or going to a small group or talking about God or even memorizing some verses. The the focus tightens a little bit more with our next parable, the great banquet. And it it talks about folks that are, are interested in Jesus, but they end up having some lame excuses when the time comes to actually go, to actually commit to God, to actually be in relationship with him. And when push comes to shove, They choose other things, convincing themselves that the things are more important or at least more urgent than their relationship with God. And then our next parable comes in a little bit tighter and it talks about that there's a cost to this discipleship, that it takes the commitment discussion even further, that following Jesus is more than an RSVP, it's more than an intention. It reminds us that, you know, it's not a tax, it's a cost. This idea that you pay something to get something else back. Hopefully that you're paying something to get something even better back. And it also asks us the pretty convicting question of what it would cost you to not follow Jesus. And that brings us to today. The fifth parable that we're going to talk to respond to all of that stuff that we've talked about already. This is a story about two sons' responses to their dad. And it really is answering the question, Okay, what does it actually look like to interact with a God that you are choosing to follow or not follow? What does that interaction look like? Remember, the focus of all of the parables is about who will enter God's kingdom. Relationship here in this life and eternally and who won't. All right, so today we are in chapter 15 of Luke. And chapter 15 um, contains three parables. It has the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. See, there's a theme here, okay? And we kind of need to read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15 to get a context for these stories, to figure out what is going on, where are they when Jesus is telling them. So verses 1 and 2 Say, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. 
but the Pharisees, and he eats with them. Two types of folks in Jesus's audience as he's sharing these stories. There's a crowd of, also seems to be at least some high-ranking um, religious leaders kind of lingering there to overhear what Jesus is going to say to these, this group of sinners, these shameful people. Okay, so it's also helpful to point out here that while there is a fascination maybe with these unchurched people about Jesus and about the things that he, he teaches and he says, there's a suspicion and um, even an offense to these arrogant sort of Jewish officers that they have with Jesus. All right, so I told you it was three stories. In the first two little mini stories that um, come before the third one that we're going to talk about, Jesus sets a pattern of an owner loses something, looks for it, and then celebrates when it's found. Loses something, looks for it, celebrates when it's found. And there's this repetition that happens in all of the stories. It's in 6 and 7 and verses 9 and 10 where he says, Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep, my lost coin. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. All right, so we're continuing to frame this in. And we come to the third story that Jesus tells, the longest story. And here's the point. Here is the big idea. Gracious God invites you to repent. A gracious God invites you to repent. I'd love for y'all to keep this in mind with everything that we read and talk about today. Everything depicts, leads to, emphasizes this beautiful truth that a gracious God invites you to repent. All right, Luke 15, we're going to start with that third story. We're going to start in chapter 11. And remember that Jesus is telling this story. And he's telling it to a crowd of what would be considered unclean, disreputable, obvious sinners, and this sort of religious elite that is listening in to try to defame him. All right, here we go. Verse 11, Jesus continued, he's telling that third story, there was a man who had two sons. All right, we're going to stop there automatically. Okay, so over on the side of your screen here, I'm going to put up a chart. So we're going to kind of track this as we read. So maybe it just helps me organize information. And I, I hope it's helpful to you too. So we're starting with there was a man and he had two sons. We're going to go ahead and call the man the father. Okay, so this story um, in scripture kind of can go by a lot of names. Maybe you've heard it as the prodigal son or the lost son. Some folks argue that it should be called the lost sons. But I'm going to say for today, our focus is going to be on the Father. So anything that we, we look at today is going to be through the lens, looking at the Father. All right, let's start the interaction with the first son. Here we go. Let's pick up in verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. All right, so right off the bat, in these first verses out of this story, we see that this, this younger son essentially has no relationship with the father. It starts with him going to him to ask for his, his inheritance. He's essentially saying, hey, you're as good as dead to me. Can I have your stuff? All right. And then he clearly leaves. They are no longer in relationship anymore, physically distant. The, the, the relationship is severed. And the son, he lives autonomously. And it seems like it's great for a while. But then the most that he would ever get in his life, that inheritance, the most resources didn't prove to be enough. There's a fickleness and an instability here, not just in his resources, but it seems like in the people that he was with and the opportunities that he had, even in the fun that he was able to have, it was not enough. And it seems like was beyond his ability to control any of it. So in the end, he ends up in need and alone, desperate, if you will. All right, let's see what happens next. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Here we see the son make a decision. It is a very clear decision to go back to his father, to return. And he's returning in repentance. Okay, so repentance is one of those big churchy words that seems like you kind of get it, but also it's a little bit vague. And I actually think that the son's response is a pretty good definition of repentance. It kind of has three parts here. First, he could see his sin. He could see his offenses to the father. He is very aware of, of them. He also understands his unworthiness, that he doesn't deserve anything from the father. But that last part that's also really important to repentance is wanting relationship back. He goes back to the Father in repentance. A gracious God invites you to repent, to go back, to come back into relationship. All right, let's see what the Father's response is. So he got up and he went to the father. I'm in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fan calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Okay, so at our house, we have a pool. And I also have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, okay? And they, for all their effort, they cannot swim very good at all, okay? So out of love for them, 
out of a concern for them, out of a ferocious protection of them and their safety and their life, we have rules about the pool. One of them, among many, is no concrete without a grown-up. So the idea here is that I keep, we keep this kind of three-foot radius around the pool off-limits unless they are with a grown-up. And it's to stop them from, I don't know, anything accidental or purposeful that would, that would happen where they might fall in and drown in the pool, which would be awful. Now, our rules and our boundaries of no concrete without an adult is not to stop them from having fun or from being independent or from being creative or being able to play in our backyard. It is to avoid pain, avoid trauma, avoid death. We go over and over that boundary and we make them repeat it to us every time that we go outside. Now, okay, let's say the, the worst happens. It makes me sick to even think about this, but one of my kids, either Ava or Aaron, they fall in. They fall in that pool. What am I gonna do? Of course, I am gonna come running to them. I'm not gonna be annoyed that they broke the rule, right? I'm also not gonna be thinking about ways to discipline them for not having obeyed or for getting themselves into a stupid, avoidable situation. That's not what's gonna be on my mind at that moment. My only desire is to save them, to jump in, to love them and pull them out. Guys, God always saves first. God always saves first. Our God is a God who rescues first. He, like me, would be broken hearted if he saw one of his kids, when he sees one of his kids fall in and start drowning. He's broken hearted because there's pain and trauma and death in that. He rescues first because he has all the time in the world to help us fix our behavior, to help us remember the rules after that. So let's look back at what we just read in verse 20 and 21. First off, in verse 20, I, it, it, we can't overlook that the father was looking for him. He was not off doing other things. He was looking for him so much so that he could see him really far away. That communicates such a desire, a desire to have him back in anxiousness. He's emotionally invested in him coming back. And he's not looking for him to come back so he can remind him of the rules. He's looking for him to come back so that he can run to him. He runs to him, very undignified, but with urgency and intensity. There's nothing cold or commanding about this father. It says he is compassion. He is filled with compassion. Compassion, meaning that he, he's gracious. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. The Father is gracious. He embraces the Son. They are physically, but so much more than that, not separated anymore when you embrace someone. He kisses him 
with such intimacy and, and, and blessing to him. And this is all before the son says anything. All the son has to do is show up. In verse 21, we get the son's confession. And how does the father respond? Well, gracious God invites you to repent. The father gives robes and sandals and a ring generously and immediately. There's not a quiz. He gives it immediately. He reinstates his identity as son. That's the very first thing. And then he gives this feast, this extravagant celebration. Similarly to the two stories that Jesus tells above this about the lost sheep and the lost coin in verses 7 and 10. And here again, we kind of have this repeating um, where he says, There is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. A gracious God invites you to repent. Verse 24, he's talking, to the, he's talking to the servants. He's saying, bring these things. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. They celebrate. There is a togetherness in it. There's a restoration and a reconciliation and a joy God emotes all over the place here. Do you think of God as being emotional, particularly emotional over you? They celebrate because a gracious God invites you to repent. All right, now remember the father has two sons. Now the second son, we don't know a lot about what is going on with him while the younger son is away. All that we really know is that he stays um, on the property, right? So he, he stays physically around the father. Other than that, we don't really know. So we're going to go ahead and say that they have a questionable relationship. We're not sure. But these next few verses might start to flesh out a little bit of the relationship that they have. Let's pick it back up in verse 28. The older brother, or meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you gave, you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Here we see the older son refusing to engage with his father. He refuses to go in. He won't go into the celebration. He pushes himself out over his opinions and his judgments about what is going on. He judges his brother and what his brother does or doesn't deserve. And maybe a little more uncomfortably, he judges his father. He judges his father's decisions, which in short is saying he judges the father's character that would lead him to the decisions that he makes. 
his thoughts and his ways and his understandings of the situation of what is fair or right or good is what is leading his actions, his whole perspective. In verse 30, did you catch it? Instead of saying my brother, he says this son, right? He, he makes assumptions about what the son has been doing while he is gone. He fills in the gaps and he could be exactly right or not. That, that's not the point. The point is that in, in making assumptions and judgments about somebody else, he's doing two things. He's justifying himself and he's creating distance. I'm not like that. There's such a bitterness brewing here. And the bitterness is causing him to withdraw relationship. He's shrinking from relationship, from the warped vantage point of his own rightness. Verse 29 uses some interesting words here, some definite hyperbole here of like, I have been slaving for you. I have never disobeyed you. But the point is made He's living out of self-righteousness. That's another one of those big churchy words, but that's simply meaning self is right. My rightness comes from myself. My value comes from my performance, my work, my definition of what is just or fair or right. Here's something that's super interesting. Did you catch it? Both sons the younger and the older, both of their hearts believe that they know better than the father. Both of them. And both sons withdraw from him because of it. The older has the same sin, has the same heart as his brother. Just the behaviors are different. One looks like play and one looks like work. One looks like leaving one looks like staying, but both hearts are far. The other difference besides the behavior, I guess, is that the older son doesn't seem desperate, at least not yet. I don't think he is getting the repentance part. I don't think he can see his sin. I don't think he can see how he offends the father. I don't think he understands his unworthiness. In fact, the opposite He's standing on his own worthiness. And I don't think he wants relationship back because, again, we see him doing the opposite. He is refusing the father's invitation. So instead of repentance, the older son responds in anger, in feeling owed. Owed for what he has done, for his performance, for his righteousness. And he is blind to what he has in asking, essentially, what do I get? What do I get? If he gets that, what do I get? He's feeling owed. So let's look at how the father responds to him. Verse 31, he says, My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. I wonder how many of you, because I think I've read this before and felt like 
the father's response is a little unsatisfactory. But the more I look at it and dig into how he is responding, I think it is beautiful and it's the perfect response. First off, I want to go back and point out in verse 28, he goes out to the son. Okay, so same, same desire for both sons. He goes out to both of them. And then in verse 31, he, he says, my son. He has the same tenderness, the same engagement with both sons. A gracious God invites you to repent. So what does he say? How does he respond to that question, what do I get? The father says, you get me. You get me and everything I have, which is to say you get everything. You get relationship with me. You get love and grace. You get my desire. You get my urgency, my intensity. You get my compassion. You get to not be separated from me. You get my intimacy and my blessing. And you also get to be celebrated. You get my joy and you get my adoration. And in a roundabout way, he's saying what you don't get, you don't have to live out of your own performance. You don't have to live out of your own righteousness or your own merit or resources or wisdom. And you don't have to live out of your own debt or out of your own failure either. The father in his response, he invites him to reconcile the brokenness, both between them, the father and the son, and brother to brother. Did you catch it? In verse 32, when talking about the younger son, he responds with your brother. He's calling out the relationship there. He's saying they're akin, they're related. They are both sinners and they're both sons. A gracious God invites you to repent. Okay, so then the story ends. <laughs> That's it. That's where Jesus stops telling it. And we don't know what happens. We don't know what the older brother is going to choose to do. Is he going to dig his heels in? Is he going to see it and repent? We don't know. What will he do? What would you do? Okay, so I don't know how many of you guys know um, the band Mumford and Sons at all. Maybe you can put that in the in the little chat if they're Ooh. still relevant. I like them. I particularly like them when I'm in Rocky Mountain National Park and I'm uh, kind of going there and seeing whatever. But they have a song called Roll Away Your Stone. And in this song is kind of a lot of, I don't know, gospel allusions. And there, there's a verse in here that I love. I thought about it the whole time that I was um, studying for this story. And I don't know if they had this story in mind when they wrote it or not, but let me read you just a little snippet of it. It says, It seems that all my bridges have been burned. But you say, that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that'll change this heart, but the welcome that I receive with the restart. That's exactly how this grace thing Grace, remember, is receiving something that you don't deserve. Your bridges are burned. You have nothing else. A gracious God invites 
repentance. Not for the sake of you just accepting that you have been bad, that you're wrong, but so that he doesn't have to be separated from you anymore. A gracious God inviting changes hearts. It's not the long walk home. It's not shame. It's not cleaning up. It's not managing behavior. It's not a good plan. It is not even punishment. A gracious God inviting is what changes hearts. Relationship with God changes hearts. And I promise you can ask any person that's been following it. And there'll be plenty of things that will get worked on. But remember, a gracious God always rescues the drowning first. You have to be alive before you can start a new life. It's not the long walk home that'll change your heart, but the welcome that you receive with the restart. So reader or listener, what will you do? How will you end this story? It was Jesus' implied question to that crowd of, shim, of, of shameful sinners back then. And by the way, both the scandalous folks and the legalistic church people were both the shameful sinners. Do you acknowledge that God is the gracious Father that he is? Sounds like a silly question, but I don't know. Think about it. Can you see what separates you from the Father? Underneath the defending and the justifying, are you able to accept your own unworthiness? Can you accept that you don't deserve his grace, but that you need it? Do you want relationship with him and that true identity? Standing outside, will you choose to enter into the great banquet? Will you choose to enter into the Father's party? Will you choose to enter into the kingdom and have the king change you forever? A gracious God invites you to repent. Will you pray with me?